Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer uh, based here in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. You can find me at joshuaritter.com. We are recording this on Friday, January 27th, 2023. In this week's episode, the murder trial of Alex Murdoch begins. The former heir of a legal dynasty is accused of the brutal killing of his wife and son. Also in breaking news, five Memphis police officers face murder charges following an alleged fatal beating during a traffic stop. And finally, the addition of Brian Laundrie's family attorney to a lawsuit filed by the parents of Gabby Petito. Today, we are joined by Ann Bremner, a trial attorney and former prosecutor who currently specializes in civil rights, catastrophic loss litigation, and criminal law, and is also an accomplished legal analyst you can see on Fox, CNN, MSNBC, and many other outlets. And Ann has a new book out, Justice in the Age of Judgment, debuting at number one in law and media on Amazon. Ann, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure. Oh, it is our pleasure. Uh, Before we jump in, uh, please tell us a little bit about your background, your current practice, and a little bit about your book. Well, my background is I grew up in the Northwest, and I became a lawyer in 1983. So I was a prosecutor like you for five years, and I went into private practice defending police officers, representing victims, and doing some analysis on TV over the last couple of decades. And our book is written, written with my little brother, who's a psychiatrist. He was at Yale Medical. Yeah, he was at Yale and now he's at Emory. And he's done, he's published quite a bit, but he's an expert in memory and PTSD, et cetera. We centered it on the Amanda Knox case, which was a real injustice that turned into a justice when she was exonerated. And then we weave in a lot of cases that have been in the news and some of my cases with the premise being confirmation bias and the media and social media really have impacted trials these days. Some of the trials we'll talk about. And basically what the upshot is and how to deal with it as a lawyer and for the public in terms of being informed. So that's kind of a mouthful, but that's what the book's about. It's available on Amazon. And thanks for mentioning it. Oh, absolutely. And it sounds perfect uh, for the cases we're going to talk about today. So we're <laughs> we're really uh, curious to hear your insights on these cases. So let's let's jump right in. The murder trial of former lawyer Alex Murdoch is underway in South Carolina with opening statements beginning on January 25th. Murdoch is accused of the 2021 shooting deaths 
of his son, Paul, and wife, Maggie. Their bodies were found on the family's hunting property, with Paul suffering a shotgun wound to the head and Alex's wife, Maggie, suffering multiple gunshot wounds from what has been described as an AR-style rifle. Murdoch is a member of a prominent legal family in the South Carolina Low Country. Three generations of his family have served as solicitor, which oversaw prosecutions throughout the area. A portrait of his late grandfather, one of the solicitors, had hung on the wall of the courtroom in which Murdoch is being tried, but it has been removed before trial. Crichton Waters, the state's lead prosecutor in the case, highlighted some of the details of the prosecution's case in opening statements. The evidence includes cell phone data from Alex's phone, as well as a victim's phone that allegedly ties Alex to the crime scene, as well as gunshot residue that was found on some of Murdoch's possessions. Waters describes the details of the victim's injuries as horrific, telling the jury it's going to be gruesome to hear. The defense, on their, for their part, has argued that the prosecution's case relies entirely on theories with no direct evidence, forensics, or eyewitnesses to convict Murdoch for the murders. Murdoch faces 30 years to life if convicted on the murder charges. This is in addition to uh, other charges that he's fa- facing, nearly 100 additional tar- charges related to fraud and embezzlement. All right. And it is apparently hard to overstate what an influence the Murdoch family has had on this area known as the South Carolina low country. Mm -hmm. Many of the jurors in the case when uh, during voir dire with the judge said that they were aware of the family. They were aware of the case. uh, And the judge, in fact, met let many of them on as long as they said that they, they would not carry a bias with them. But strangely enough, the defense never sought a change of venue. Do you think that was a misstep in this case, in your view? Well, given the, the the prominence of the family, I think the defense probably thinks their best venue is where they are, even though this seems to be a real black sheep, right, in terms of yeah. the prominence of the family and the respect. But I always think a change of venue is, is something that should be considered and in any high-profile case, even though with the Internet, these cases go everywhere if they're high-profile, right? right? I and mean, it doesn't matter where you are. You could be here in you know, Palm Springs or Seattle or anywhere else. And you've heard the same things really that this jury is going to hear they've been exposed to a mistake, maybe. But they're banking on the reputation of the family, I think, and saying because the fraud evidence isn't coming in an opening statement, they're not going to be able to mention it. People are going to say, how could a father kill his own son and his wife with no motive from such a prominent family? That's a really excellent point. As long as they don't know about the drug dealing and all of the other nonsense, Right. Then, yeah, the, the the people might just know that, hey, how could somebody with this type of a reputation for this yes. community commit this type of crime? Excellent point. And another good point is we're talking about it. I'm in Los Angeles. You're up in the Northwest. The, the whole right. nation's talking about it. Where are they really going to bring this case that they wouldn't know about this family? But I just thought that was an interesting um, mm-hmm. choice by the defense to not even make that motion. Um, another right. thing is much much has been made about the Murdoch's emotional uh, Murdoch's emotional reactions, and I wanted to talk uh, about this about how we perceive how people should react, how jurors perceive it. So the first thing is a a, a responding officer took the stand and testified that arriving on scene of the murders, um, and he made a point of testifying that Murdoch did not cry. Now, mm-hmm. people talk to me about this, especially given your book. Um, mm-hmm. People react differently to different differently. situations. And, and how does that play with the jurors? And how do you think 
the defense might use that um, or counter, you know, make a counter argument to what the prosecution might use that for. I've seen with juries over the years that that argument usually holds sway, which is people react differently. You know, people can be stoic. They can be just shocked. They can be suffering PTSD. And, and jurors accept that unless someone acts in a really guilty way. But if you're not crying or you're crying or you're upset, you're not upset. I don't think that I think jurors get that. You know, we're all different and they accept that argument. But there's certain kinds of behavior that, that they just will look at and say, well, that that person just really seems guilty. You know, if they're sweating and worrying and, you know, making all kinds of excuses for why they're there and what happened, et cetera, then that that's something to consider. But just crying, not crying. I don't know. Jurors, I think, accept people react differently to different things. Yeah. I mean, it's it's one thing to be flat out suspicious and it's another mm-hmm. thing to behave in a way that some might consider suspicious, but also might just be how people react given the circumstances. I mean, exactly. Who knows how any of us would react to coming upon our, you know, our family oh, being dead in front just of us. Stunned. I mean, I'm sure it, a jury would look at that and say, I get it. He's completely stunned. What a horrific sight for him and to have to report and respond. So yeah. I think yeah. so far so good for him on that part of the case. Yeah. So now the other side of this is that a lot of reporting has been done about the fact that he has cried a couple of times in court. Right. And they're saying, is he doing this for the benefit of the jury? Now, he's a trial attorney, too. So he right. has a certain understanding of the jury and how they pay attention to things and especially how they pay attention to the defendant's reaction. Mm-hmm. What do you make of this? Are they is the media making too much of it? Do you believe the the his tears? Are, do you think this is all an act? I'll just just give me your hot take on it. <laughs> well, my hot take on it is that he's faking it. It's crocodile tears. Wow. That's just me. Um, but you know, he, he I mean, he's so good at kind of being a con. When you look at the thing with the maid, Depp, and the you know insurance that he finagled, and then, you know, he's he's basically caused a lot of people to believe in him when he was doing things that were basically um, suspicious, right? And potentially criminal. So to me, I watch him and I think, ah, you know, he, I don't know, I was a juror, I'd, I'd be skeptical, but you know, there's 12 people in that box that'll watch him and think, oh, he's crying, he's lost his family, like I talked about before. How would you kill your own son and your own wife? At a dog kennel, no, no less. I mean, how could you do that in your own home, your own property? And to see him crying, he's crying for them. I think he's crying for himself. But I think a jury could think he's crying for the loss of his family. What a tragedy. Yeah. Yeah, it's an extraordinary point that just wrapping your heads around what would bring a person to murder their wife and son mm-hmm. might just be too much for jurors to swallow and say, I just can't believe a person would do this, especially the person I see crying in court. But who knows? I mean, it's so early on in this trial. We'll we'll right. see how a lot of this unfolds. Uh, but stay, staying with this point on, you know, how we expect people to react, uh, the 911 call placed mm-hmm. by Murdoch was played in court. Uh, we're going to play a little bit of that for you now. So, Anne, he sounds hysterical here. He sounds Mm -hmm. emotional. And and I guess the point the defense would make is he sounds like someone who happened upon the deaths of his family. What do you think? How do do you how do you what kind of an impact do you think that 911 call will have? 
Well, those calls are admissible because they're basically excited utterances and raised gesti, which means you're describing what you see. And so that it's reliable evidence because he's he's in the excitement. That's not the right word, but that's what the evidence rules say, as you know, of the moment. And so there's not, at least as an evidentiary basis, there's not a basis for him to basically make up stuff or to act in a certain way that's that's premeditated. He's just reacting to what he just saw. And I think for the defense, it's a great piece of evidence because he's high pitched in his voice. He's absolutely shocked and panicked. And he's describing finding the bodies, not being the perpetrator of the crime. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. I think the defense certainly has um, an argument to be made with it. Uh, Mm -hmm. It will be interesting, though, because if the prosecution is able to prove that he is the one behind these murders, that's going to be a really chilling uh, piece of audio to to look back on, right? To realize this person's just faking this all for the benefit of of the nine one one recording. We will continue to watch this case slowly as the whole country is, and it's going to go on for weeks. Let's turn to Memphis, Tennessee. Five former police officers in Memphis have been indicted on charges of murder and kidnapping for their part in the death of Tyree Nichols. Nichols, a 29-year-old black man, was reportedly pulled over for reckless driving January 7th of this year. According to officers, a confrontation occurred when they approached Nichols' vehicle and he allegedly fled. A subsequent confrontation occurred after his eventual apprehension. Soon after being taken into custody, Nichols reportedly experienced shortness of breath. He was subsequently taken to a hospital where he died three days later. Photos of Nichols in the hospital have been released and show Nichols with severe swelling and lacerations. An independent autopsy was commissioned by Nichols' family, which cited his cause of death as, quote, extensive bleeding caused by a severe beating. Body cam video of the incident has been uh, previously shown to the family, and it is expected to be released publicly Friday, January 27th. That is the day that we are doing this recording, so we don't have the benefit of having seen the video just yet. The five former officers who are also black face charges of aggravated assault and kidnapping, official misconduct, and official oppression in addition to second-degree murder. In Tennessee, second-degree murder is punishable by a sentence of 15 to 60 years. Also uh, worth noting, Memphis PD amended their policy regarding the duty to intervene in the wake of George Floyd's murder, stating, and this is a quote, any member who directly observes another member engaged in dangerous or criminal conduct or abuse of a subject shall take reasonable action to intervene. Okay, and I, I think it's clear that this this case really hinges on what is on that body cam uh, video. We don't have it to have reviewed by the time we're doing this recording, but talk to me about what you would expect that video would need to show in order to bring these types of charges and, you know, precisely second degree murder. Well, a severe beating, and we've heard it described, of course, already by the police chief in Memphis and the FBI director saying it's horrific, it's vile, it's, it's unimaginable and, decades of police work we haven't seen anything like this so we're, we're getting basically the preview of something that sounds to be uh, a, a second degree or intentional murder and that would be an intentional beating they've compared it to the rodney king case which is took place a long time ago but we also saw those videos of a beating of rodney king where the state charges ended up in a not guilty finding but then the federal charges stuck on the on the federal um criminal case against them so you and I've talked, we both have represented police officers over the years. And 
you know, they have a very difficult job. I'm defending a police officer now in a homicide case. And I also just, I think I told you, defended our sheriff in Pierce County on a false report, reporting charge, and he was acquitted um, recently out in the Northwest. So we expect to see, I guess, what would be a beating, right? I mean, and then he dies from what's called a beating from the yeah. medical examiner's opinion. So it sounds like it's going to be very brutal. It's very unfortunate, but we have to wait till we see it. Yeah. What do you think about the decision even to release it at all before it's being used in court? The idea of, of bringing in kind of the public to the evidence of this case? I think that with confirmation bias, that once that video's out, if it's as described, it's going to be devastating for the defense. And I don't know how you can get past that, frankly. I've been in a situation defending a police officer where a video was released prematurely and it was di very difficult to get around. On the other hand, with bench bar press guidelines, and the right to a fair trial that we want to ensure, would that tape be admissible in court? And the answer is yes. So a prosecutor can be justified, as you know, in releasing that kind of a tape because they can be assured in advance that they're not releasing something that won't be admissible um, and would prejudice the right of these officers to a fair trial. But in the, at the end of the day, look at the Chauvin case and, and George Floyd. That video basically convicted him. Yeah. All the jury needed to do was watch that video and hear from a medical examiner. They didn't even need to hear from all the other witnesses in that case. Yeah. Yeah, it's so curious to me, too, um, why there's kind of this additional fanfare around the release of the video. Instead of just mm -hmm. bringing the charges right. and releasing the video, they've kind of announced the charges, and then they're having this release date, you know, a couple of days later. Mm -hmm. Especially, like you said, in light of kind of just the... Uh, political temperatures that are going to be raised by something if it's as as graphic and as horrible as it's being described which is another curious thing to me is everybody's commenting on it right. rather than just letting it speak for itself you know right and i don't know if you saw but the president's also weighed in on it president biden came in and, and is asking for calm and saying that it's upsetting i guess he's heard about it or seen it but asking for calm and that may be one reason to delay the release of the video which is if it's released will it cause unrest and so they yeah. want to make sure they're prepared with security yeah yeah well we will we will unfortunately have to wait to see it right. uh, later today and 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 comment on it at a later time but let's talk about this change in policy uh for the memphis police mm -hmm. department um, I read it earlier, but how much do you think that affected their decision to bring a filing um, uh, for second degree against five officers in this case? And, and, and what we're being told is that not all of those officers were directly involved in the alleged beating. Right. And we've seen that change. We have it in my state, too, which is basically you have a duty to intervene as an officer if you see a fellow officer using excessive force. Now, what you, you had that in the Chauvin case, and you have that potentially in this case. If, if there's bystanders and they're letting this happen and they don't intervene, then they're going to be in violation. And I think it's an important, basically, offshoot of the Chauvin-George uh, Floyd case, which was you had officers there that were directing traffic. We've seen it all in the videos or were not directly involved in the use of force, um, the use of force that killed him, that killed George Floyd. And so the law basically says, we don't care if you say that you were there and you didn't cause the death, because if you didn't help and you didn't intervene, when you clearly saw other officers using excessive force, then you're going to be guilty too. Yeah. It makes me, and I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts 
if I'm if you have some on this, but it it makes me think to what complications this is going to further uh, add to police work, in the sense that you know these situations are very fluid, uh, they're fast moving, and lots of times you have officers. You know, some officers are involved in the uh, takedown, you know, and detention mm-hmm. of a, a suspect, and 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 other officers are being given orders. And it's important that orders are being followed. But now officers are put in a position where they're saying you have to sometimes ignore those orders if you feel that something illegal is taking place. Do you do you care to comment on any of that? Yeah, and I, I you know, I, I think like you, I've defended officers for so long. And, yeah. you know, the seminal case is Graham versus Connor, which says you can't judge use of force by by armchair quarterbacking or 2020 hindsight because officers right. have to make split second decisions all the time. And then you compound the problem that the officers face with telling them, well, don't follow your command staff or, you know, orders, but you've got to intervene and make sure that excessive force isn't being used. So it makes it very difficult for them. And I feel like with police officers, they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't these days. In Seattle, we've lost so many police officers. You know, they can't be effective in law enforcement. Where I live, we've had break-ins like crazy in, in a very secure neighborhood and building. You just see it everywhere with, with crime. Crime's coming up. Police officers are leaving. And they probably are confused to a certain extent about what to do in a situation with split-second decision-making that, where they think, I don't know if they're using too much force. I can't release. What if you can't really see? What if you're like not within the, you know, the, the use of force itself? You might be directing traffic. I mean, there's so many factual questions on that. Yeah. Finally, I think the pendulum's swinging back a little bit for officers to where people say, we need safety. We need police officers and we need to give them clear boundaries in terms of what they do. But also we need to support them. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, listen, there are instances where officers um, commit criminal acts. It, sure. It's absolutely true. And they should held, be held responsible. Absolutely. And I hope mm-hmm. that is what's taking place in this case that we're talking about here. But mm-hmm. at the same time, you're talking about people who, like you said, are it's some of the most difficult work that you can get involved in where you're making these split second decisions that mm-hmm. can be change a person's life, could end a yes. person's life, could perhaps end your own life if you don't right. act quickly enough. So I my my sympathies go out to them, especially because we know for the most part, the, the vast majority are really hardworking uh, people who are very conscientious and just trying to do a good job. Finally, let's move to Sarasota County, Florida, where a judge has ruled that the attorney of Brian Laundrie's family can be added as a defendant to the civil lawsuit filed by the parents of Gabby Petito. Gabby's parents, Joseph Petito and Nicole Schmidt, initially filed the lawsuit against Chris and Roberta Laundrie last year, alleging the infliction of emotional distress after the Laundries failed to provide information about Gabby's murder. The Laundries attorney, Stephen Bertolino, previously tried to have the lawsuit dismissed, arguing that the Laundries were under no obligation to come forward with any knowledge regarding Gabby's death. However, a judge ruled that the statements made by Bertolino, while the search for Gabby continued, gave sufficient cause for the lawsuit to move forward. Gabby Petito was found dead in Grand Teton National Park in 2021 after a massive search following her disappearance. 
While authorities were attempting to locate Gabby, and I think this is what is important, Bertolino made a public statement saying, on behalf of the Laundry family, it is our hope that the search for Miss Petito is successful and that she is reunited with her family. A trial date is set for August 14th of 2023. Okay, and jump right in. What What is your reaction to, to the judge's decision here? It's kind of a mixed bag. I mean, I, I kind of support it because I think that if you go too far as a lawyer and you tell that family that we hope that she's reunited, reunited with her family when you know she's dead, then yeah. that is definition, right, of intentional infliction of emotional distress. I yeah. mean, it's outrageous and not even tolerable in a civilized society. That's the definition, as we know, of, of intentional infliction of emotional distress. But the question is, of course, did he know that, right. that she was dead? Right. I mean, it's and how do you get there when you have attorney client privilege? Right. How do you get that information? Right. Exactly. Exactly. No, it, this is such a interesting question from a legal perspective to me, because as attorneys, we want to feel that we can make a statements in advocacy of our clients. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and let's assume for a second he knew that Gabby was dead. Is is he getting too close to the line here? of trying to just kind of make a a a a bland statement, you know, just to the press on behalf of the family that they they hope it's successful but 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 you're right the, the the line that you pointed out and she is reun- reunited with her family. Right. Right. That's really the pivotal thing. I think that was the step too far. Had he said, you know, we hope that they're successful in their search, blah 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 and kind of left it ambiguous. But right. this idea that that they believe that she may be found, you know, you can only assume that what you're saying by that statement is may be found alive. And mm-hmm. if he knew that she was not, in fact, alive at that time. But the point that you make is that part of this would have to be to prove that he knew she was alive. And how do you do that? In a civil suit, he's going to be the defendant subject to discovery. Mm-hmm. This will likely include depositions, but how do you? How are they going to navigate this when he's got attorney-client privilege and at the same time has to go under the uh, you know, know. The crucib- crucible of a deposition? What are your thoughts? I just don't know. I don't know how they're going to get there. The, the plaintiffs, I mean, her family. How, how do you get that exact information that he knew she was dead without violating right. attorney-client privilege? Can right. they say there's other evidence out there that was clear that she was dead? Is there circumstantial evidence to show he should have known she was dead? You know, all of that kind of evidence Maybe, And of course, the burden is lower in a civil case. So they want to go forward, you know, on, on that score. Is it an ethical issue, you know, for the yeah. bar to take a look at? Now, I think that's probably where it is for the bar to say, did, did you make a statement that was knowingly false? And, and did right. you, you know, violate 3.6 or anything else in terms of what you can say publicly about a case? But or whether candor to the tribunal doesn't really fit because it's not part of a court proceeding at that time. It wasn't. But just candor in general and professionalism. So ethically, there might be issues, but I just don't know how they get there unless they know something we don't know. I mean, did they know something we don't know? Right. uh, Maybe they do. And maybe they're just hoping to find that out in the discovery process and by other mechanisms. Um, Uh But I was wondering, could could they Mm -hmm. ask the simple question of at the time you made this statement? Did you mm-hmm. have reason to believe she was in fact dead? Does Bingo. that vi- violate? Does that could he say attorney-client privilege at that point? I don't know. Well, no, and I think I don't, your question is perfect because he, he he has to answer that without violating the privilege, right? I mean, that's a right. brilliant question that you pose. 
Right. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> they, <laughs> yeah. they, I'll, I'll send them my bill. <laughs> yeah, send them bill. Yeah, because that, that's the question to ask. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's it's a it's a really interesting um, because usually you do not see the lawyer as a defendant in these types of civil suits. So it's a really interesting case. We'll have to see how it plays out, because I do believe it has ramifications beyond this, because an, an attorney should be able to feel free to comment on behalf of their client in in a in a form of advocacy Mm-hmm. We and we hear this all the time, right? You know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, attorneys will say my client is completely innocent and intends to prove that in a court of law. Sure. And they Fine. may have the client may have talked to them in 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 their office and said, "Yeah, I did right. it. Here's the gun, please." You know. So right. how far do we take all of this? Um, and it's just weird that it's being handled in this civil suit. So. Anyhow, another case we'll keep an eye on, but that unfortunately is the end of our show for this week. And thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find out more about you? Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be on with you. And I'm annbremner.com, A-N-N-E-B-R-E-M-N-E-R.com. And of course, I have the book out that I wrote with my brother and I credit him. He's he's the writer. I was just the the source, so to speak, on some of the cases. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We will definitely check out that book. And I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ. Check me out at my website at joshuaritter.com. And you can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar.